Join with me in prayer. Gracious God, we ask your blessing upon this time, this time of hearing your word, of listening, and of responding. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. There's nothing for me quite like the experience of watching five or six doctors walking out of a hospital room silently but swiftly with their backs fading down the hallway and their quick footsteps squeaking in lockstep, always with one or more of them scurrying to keep up with the leader. And, and then for me walking into that same room, the one that they walked out of, locking eyes with a patient and the family left to pick up the pieces from the news they've received. When I was working as a chaplain, I had a nurse look at me one time and say, they don't like losing. I was confused. Who doesn't like losing? No one likes losing. What do you mean? Who are you talking about? She pointed down the hallway to those disappearing white coats, the ones who had just told a heart transplant patient that there was nothing more that could be done for them. They, they don't like losing, she said. And of course, they didn't tell the patient that. They didn't even tell the patient that they saw it as a loss. And they didn't really even tell them that their quest for a cure for her was over. They didn't say much to her at all. What they, what they said was that they were transferring her care to another unit. The nurse had called me before they even went in because she knew that they were transferring her out of the transplant unit and into palliative care and likely eventually hospice. You see, there was nothing more they could do. These doctors, these doctors had just the day before, literally the day before, been going through options for continued aggressive treatment for this patient. They had even told her that she would hopefully go home one day. In the intervening hours, they had since concluded again that they just couldn't do anymore. And for them, this was like a surrender. It was the end. They had lost and death was going to win. They were losing and the patient was losing. This has been our perspective of death for a very long time. And especially within modern medicine, the, the hunt for a cure the cure becoming really the only thing that matters. It absorbs doctors and it absorbs patients and their families. And of course, this makes good sense in many ways. We want to keep the ones we love as long as possible. And, and we want to have more to do with our lives. We want to keep living. In his book, Being Mortal, Medicine and What It Means in the End, Dr. Atul Gawande points out that in recent history, and by recent history, we're talking the last 100 to 200 years, there really haven't been many decisions to be made by patients and their families while they're receiving care. He, he writes this, one of the beauties of the medical system was that it made these decisions simple. You took the most aggressive treatment available. It wasn't a decision at all, really, but a default setting. And within this system, the goal almost always seemed to be 
avoiding death. Avoiding death, which ironically and quite obviously will ultimately prove to be impossible for everyone. None of us will avoid death. While the concept of avoiding death, but the concept of survival really isn't new, modern medicine saw a change in the way that we die and in a sense, the way that we make choices. In fact, it has dramatically reduced our choices in part because of this concept of seeing death as losing. We either listen to the doctors, which gives us our best chance of winning, or we don't. Very soon after I walked into that patient's room, the heart transplant patient, you know, the one that was left behind by the small herd of surrendering transplant doctors, soon after I walked into her room, we were joined by another doctor. No white lab coat, no clipboards, not even a stethoscope. She invited me with the patient's consent to stay in the room and she said something I'll never forget. And it was, it was something so simple. She looked at the patient and her husband and she said, you are in charge of so many things right now. You've got no wrong decisions to make and you're not alone. The patient calmly closed her eyes for the first time in weeks, she was smiling smiling through her tears. She would later tell me that she had felt like her life was out of control for so many years and she had been clinging to the doctors for all those years. And this was the first time she felt like she wasn't fighting against death. Like she wasn't fighting against the clock. She felt like it was the first time someone saw her with all of who she was. Her husband was a big guy, a, a biker type, you know, the leather vest and the beard. He looked tough and he probably had some stories to tell. But when he took a walk with me later that day, his eyes red from the tears, he said something else powerful to me. He said, it feels like our world has been taken from us for so long, like, like we've been swimming in uncertainty. He said he felt like a boat bouncing around and hitting the, ro the rocks. And he said, I'm tired. I'm tired of chasing something or running from something we'll never escape. I'm tired of being afraid of death. I don't know that we'll ever shift away from treating death as losing. Indeed, because all humans will die, each of us, and their death will be the end of their earthly existence. It will be the last thing that they do that we do. And for those of us who remain, the loss is even more evident always, and it's always numbing. You see, we don't talk a lot about death in the church. And I think this is interesting. We, we sanitize it even, whether it's in the church or, or in our culture. We use phrases like pass away instead of died. I've, I've shared this before, and I've also shared that I don't like to use those softer phrases. I know that's frustrated some people, but as Alan Verhey writes in his book, The Christian Art of Dying, Learning from Jesus, he says, it's ironic that the community that has a story of death at the center of its scripture and at the center of its practices of baptism and Eucharist should fall silent about death and the practices of dying well and faithfully 
and of caring well and faithfully for the dying. Back in January, I was summoned to see one of our members, Carol Staub, and I had been visiting Carol in the hospital and keeping track of her care. I used the word summon deliberately. It was a summoning. Eric, you'll come and see me on Tuesday to discuss my funeral and some other things. We'll have a scotch, our last scotch. I went to her condo. I was told where to sit. Carol told her daughter Lois which glasses to get. We'll use the Baccarat, she said. She did give me three scotch options, all good, and she knew that they were all my favorites. She had an agenda for our meeting. We ticked through it. I'm tired, she said. I'm, I'm going to rest now. I so very much appreciated that. It's, it's always hard to know when to leave. We said goodbye. She made clear to me that this was not just goodbye from this visit, this was goodbye. Carol died the next night. Some days later, I was summoned again, this time by her daughter, Lois. Among other things, I was instructed to take the scotch glasses and the partial bottles that had been presented to me as my choice for our wee dram. These were Carol's instructions, her, her choices. Ars morendi. That's, that's Latin for the art of dying, the inspiration for Alan Verhey's book that I mentioned. Ars morendi is a concept that came about in the 1400s. This Middle Ages concept was really about a Christian way of approaching death, approaching death focused on the resurrection, on the biblical promises, on the model of Jesus Christ. And Verhey takes this concept, and he and others are advocating for a new form of ars morendi, and this modern theological and psychological approach to death shifts us away from the focus on winning and losing and leads to an empowerment, an ability to make decisions, and also the ability to direct and guide our care. I think back to what that palliative care doctor said to the heart transplant patient and her husband. She said, you're in charge of so many things right now. You've got no wrong decisions to make. And you're not alone. On this All Saints Day, we do celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate our God who in death brings us into God's heavenly realm, the, the place where there are no more tears, the place where there's no more pain, where there's no suffering, where uncertainty, which has certainly been a theme through the past nine months, where uncertainty becomes sure and certain, where we choose to be grounded when the world feels anything but. In fact, we, we refer to our funeral services not as memorial services as we often like to call them. We refer to them as services of witness to the resurrection. It's a time when we need to know about resurrection. And friends, this is a time now that is no different than a time of loss and a time of mourning and a time of facing the end. This is not like the winnowing hours and weeks of life when life feels not just uncertain, but out of control. With a pandemic that keeps surging like a cancer that recurs in the body, with an election that looms like a tumor waiting for a biopsy and waiting for news, 
with the illnesses of racial injustice and societal violence and poverty and all the struggles that we face and that we see being faced by so many others around us. With all of this, it can be easy for us to feel like things are so out of our control. It can be easy for us to look at the backs of the white coat wearing doctors walking down the hallway and thinking that our boat is being bashed against the rocks. It can feel like we're losing. We ask the questions, where is God in this? Why is this happening? What is going to happen on Tuesday? What is going to happen with this pandemic? When can I see my children? When can I see my parents? Questions swim in our heads and the unknown becomes overwhelming. Then I think back to Carol, summoning me, telling me where to sit, directing our final visit. I think of Ars Morendi, of, of choosing in the midst of the unknowns, the unknowns that bring us such anxiety, choosing the things we can do, choosing the things we can be. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't ignore the pain of the world. Jesus doesn't run from the loss, the mourning, the struggles, the pain. Jesus acknowledges all of it. He, he looks in the eyes of those who are suffering. He causes them to be seen and he loves them. And then a short bit later, Jesus says the words we heard from Phyllis this morning. He, he looks at those same people. He tells those who are gathered, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You, in the midst of all of your struggle are these things. You have, even in the midst of feeling like you are drowning in your condition, you have the ability to choose to have your actions impact others. You have the ability to reflect others to God by bringing love into the world. You are salt and you are light. Theologian Amy Jill Levine writes that we need to address the reference not only to salt, but also to the earth. The disciples do not exist to show off their taste or color. They exist not for themselves, but for the world. The disciples are to season, to color, to make more alive their world. Their very presence is a blessing. When any person sees them, that person can take heart in knowing that the disciples represent what is good in the world. Then there's the light, the, the challenge to bring the light, the hope, the peace, the love of Christ into the world, shining light in darkness, bringing love into, bringing love into the world of uncertainty and pain. You see, we have choices. You have choices. We have choices even when we feel we have none. I tell this to, and I've told this to many of you, but I tell this to people I encounter who are in the midst of trauma. When the world feels out of control, when your world feels out of control, there are things that you absolutely can choose. You sometimes just need to look for them. And friends, we have choices as to how we will live our lives today. 
how we will interact with strangers and the people we love, how we will vote, how we will react to the election, where our personal resources of time and money will go. We have choices. While not ignoring the things, the people, the news, the realities that we cannot control, we can still choose to exercise our agency over certain parts of our lives. For some of you, this will mean turning off the news and maybe taking a walk or removing or ignoring bigoted friends on social media. Or, or maybe even standing up to them and their posts. For others, it will mean participating in our 30 days of giving thanks effort, choosing each day to follow the prompts to look for gratitude. For others, it will mean sending notes of love and encouragement or donating to a local mission. You see, we have choices each day, we have choices, countless choices, as to how we will either accept the defeat of the world that seems to be crushing all around us, or instead, how we will live into our calling to be salt and light. Live into our calling to reflect God, to point people to the one who loves them and who will welcome them into the resurrection glory. The second half of our scripture lesson from the Sermon on the Mount makes it extremely clear that these choices we make, these choices are part of our faith. They're part of our connection to God and that God has given us the ability to have our actions reflect our faith, have our actions point to God as salt and light. And that these choices, especially our choices we make to bless others, are choices we make to respond to God's love and to live into God's design of our lives. They're not about us. Jesus says, don't do these things for others to see and for others to praise you and for others to celebrate you. And that's, that's hard to hear sometimes. But really, this comes down to a question of the intention behind our actions, our choices. And friends, the good news is that Christ tells us that when we are sincere, when our heart is focused on responding to God's love and God's promise of resurrection and God's seeing us and sitting with us and caring for us in the midst of all that we encounter, when our, when our hearts are focused on responding to God's love and our actions reflect that love and our choices reflect that love, it is then that we are living more fully into our, our created purpose. And our actions of love will be reflected and shown to others so that they might see God. We have these choices all around us each day even today, even this week, even during this pandemic, and, and, you know, perhaps especially this day and this week and in the weeks and months ahead. Friends, that doctor, the one without the lab coat and the clipboard and the stethoscope, she had it right. You're in charge of so many things right now. You've got no wrong decisions to make, and you're not alone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen.